Welcome everyone to episode 108, Skeletal Muscle. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm pondering skeletal muscle. Did you know it's like one of those scientific oxymorons? Skeletal muscle. It's muscle, but it's skeletal. Bones, muscle. Bones, but it's not bones. It is the stuff that keeps your bones from falling to a pile on the ground. Yes. Skeletal <laughs> muscle. Science is oxymoron. It holds us up through tension. Woo. We're going to have a good one today. I'm, feeling, I'm, I'm working my muscles. I'm working my skeleton. It's freezing cold outside. I feel like my skeleton's about to shatter. Let's work it out with some stem cell stuff. Yeah. Talk it out, girl. Let's talk it out. <laughs> All right. Everyone out there, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And as always, subscribe if you haven't already to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get new episodes downloaded automatically to your phone. And we have a great show ahead today where we are going to discuss a recently published paper in Nature Cell Biology providing insight to and improving the generation of skeletal muscle from pluripotent stem cells with our guest, Dr. April Pyle. Before we do that, let's have our first roundup of 2018, shall we, Dalen? Yes, Happy New Year to all I you guys. I forgot to say that. Happy New Year. Yeah, boy. We're living it up. All right, 2018, we're going to bring you a lot of good stuff. But living the dream. Before we do, this week on theme with our guest today, we want to remind readers of Connexon's Muscle Cell News, a free weekly hand-compiled newsletter that covers all three types of muscle, the cardiac muscle, the smooth muscle, and the skeletal muscle, you know, the skinny one. Stay up to date with the latest peer-reviewed publications, industry news, policy events, and jobs in the muscle cell research field. Subscribe to Muscle Cell News at www.musclecellnews.com.er. Don't forget the .er at the end of the one. MuscleCellNews.com.er. Okay, Kiki, round it up with some general science news. I please. will. I'm going to. I'm just thinking back to an old Saturday Night Live skit. Muscle Cell News will pump you up. <laughs> yes. Hans and Franz, one of my favorites. That's faves. right. Moving on. All right. Oh, you're complaining about the cold. Maybe you can learn a few things about how to tolerate it a little better from the squirrels, Dalen. Hmm. Yeah, from the squirrels. Researchers published December 19 in Cell Reports about their studies into the cold-sensing protein world of sensory nerve cells in ground squirrels and Syrian hamsters. Why did they choose these animals? Well, because these are hibernators, and they think maybe their sensory cells, their sensory nerves that tell the brain, the body of the squirrels, whether or not it needs to be concerned or upset about the outside world, basically tell them, you don't need to worry about that cold. It's all right. You can just go to sleep. You know, do you have trouble sleeping when it's really cold outside? Mm -mm, I love it. Or if you don't have enough blankets and you're shivering, you're trying to sleep, you're like, I'm cold. And your body's like, ah, I have that problem a lot, which is why I have a pile of blankets on my bed. But... Squirrels and Syrian hamsters don't have all those blankets. What they do have is a protein that's called TRPM8. And this is a cold sensing protein that isn't as easily activated by the cold in these squirrels and hamsters as it is in rats and mice. So one way they figured this out, they looked at mice versus Syrian hamsters and they put them on a, on a hot plate, but instead it was actually a cold plate. <laughs> so uh, the mice preferred hanging out on a cool plate that was about 30 degrees Celsius versus one that was a little bit cooler. Syrian hamsters and ground squirrels didn't notice 
let the plates were slightly chilly or uncomfortable until they were below about 10 degrees Celsius. Wow. So it's a significant difference in temperature perception there. So TRPM8 typically sends is actually this cold sensing protein that sends the message. The protein acts, the nerves get stimulated, and it sends the message of cold to your brain. So like for people like me, uh, whose hands get really cold when I'm clutching a cold iced beverage, that TRPM8 is in hyperactivity, right? It's really working and telling my brain it's cold. However, they discovered in this particular study that they could cut and paste versions from the rat gene of this TRPM8 into the hamster genome, and the hamster proteins lost their cold tolerance. So if they just tweaked that TRPM8 protein slightly, the cold tolerance changed. So modifications to TRPM8 probably aren't the only factors that help ground squirrels ignore the cold, say the researchers, but they think it's only part of the mechanism. They don't know exactly how it gets activated by cold in the first place, but something that they've done also is published December 7th in the journal Science, a cryoelectron microscope detailed view of the structure of the protein. And so with that available, they're hoping that people will be able to look at the structure and link structure to function, figure out how it gets activated and how it actually plays its part in cold tolerance and how genetic adaptations change species' ability to tolerate cold for various purposes. That's really something else. Who would have thought that just, you know, one gene sufficient to change cold tolerance? But I'll tell you, that's not what I'm learning. I need to learn from a squirrel. A squirrel could teach me in this cold weather how to keep my nuts tucked away. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's right. Oh, squirrel gosh. them away. Squirrel I them away. It. I you did it. A lame there. dude joke. You went there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I like brain stuff. So this is a really neat study. The results reported December 5th at the joint meeting of the American Society for Cell Biology and the European Molecular Biology Organization by researchers from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel. They have been looking at lab-grown brains, organoids, brain organoids, brainganoids. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One And we know that we can grow these little mini brains in the lab now. We're doing these little organoids all over the place in labs around the world. But one of the interesting questions about the brain itself is its structure, right? We see how different cells reach out and connect with each other. But one of the really unique features of the human brain is all of its infolding. The wrinkling and the infolding of the brain. And in some people with a disease called lysencephaly, it's a brain malformation where these folds and wrinkles are missing. The brains are smooth. And so the question is, what is it about the environment of the brain that leads to the folding? How does that actually happen? There's got to be some kind of forces at play. And there have been previous hypotheses that there is some kind of push and pull going on, actual physical forces between the cells or among the cells in the developing brain. And so the researchers in this study used the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system to make a mutation in the LIS1 gene that's responsible or is often present in a mutated form in people that have lysencephaly. And they found that cells that carried this mutation that they put in didn't contract or move normally. And so what they're thinking is that in their little brain organoids, this is a proof of concept for this idea that there are certain cells in the brain that push outwards and others that pull inwards to actually result in the structure that allows us to do all the things that we do. Like the tug of war in the brain. That's how I feel every day when I go to the, you know, the know. dessert bar. Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit more microscopic than that, but yes, the ever-present tug-of-war is there, and uh, this study is a step in the right direction to understanding how those forces actually make brains look like the brains. 
And then going deeper into the cells, this is something really interesting, which I think is going to open up a lot of different questions. The actual translating of proteins in the cell is made possible by organelles called ribosomes. And ribosomes are made up of a whole bunch of proteins and RNA, but they read genetic information from DNA and translate stuff into proteins, right? So researchers said, let's take a closer look at these ribosomes because the historical view, the textbook view, according to a researcher who has not published this work but presented it at the American Society for Cell Biology and European Molecular Biology, he and his colleagues kind of said the textbook view of ribosomes is that even though they're made up of all these different proteins, they're all the same in all the different cells of the body. And cell biologists have uh, historically paid very little attention to more than just the overall structure of ribosomes and just paid more attention to the kind of the role that they play and the genetic code that's getting translated, transcribed. So their research suggests that they are not all the same. Ribosomes may come in many different varieties and actually incorporate lots of different proteins, which can affect the way that they function. And he and his researchers suggest that the ribosome varieties might actually be differentially important during various stages of embryonic development. They coaxed different embryonic stem cells growing in lab dishes to develop into different kinds of cells. And then they looked at the ribosomal proteins that were found in all of those different cells. And in out of the 80 proteins that they looked at, 31 of the ribosomal proteins changed the levels of the proteins that were present in at least one type of cell. And so they think these findings indicate that specialized ribosomes are part of a developing cell's identity and actually setting that identity. So this could be a very interesting study that could lead us in some fascinating directions for future work. One of the implications here may help explain why people with mutations in certain ribosomal protein genes develop some conditions. And an example that's brought up here is diamond black fan anemia, which is a blood disorder in the bone marrow where the marrow doesn't make enough red blood cells, but there are no other problems in other body tissues. And so knowing that there are specific mutations that these might lead to specific etiologies in certain parts of the body and not others might be very important in disease and therapeutic research. More evidence, Kiki, that biology pretty much regulates biology at every level, <laughs> at every single level. Are we ever going to understand it? I hope so, but yes, nah, there's I'm always not. more questions. That's one of my favorite things about science is... Yeah, that's what I hate about deeper it. deeper you dig, <laughs> more questions. Yeah. There's always more, questions. more to do and learn, and it's so exciting. Yeah, like high school algebra, always more questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, well, I'll agree with you there. My final story is not as exciting and uplifting, but is very important for us moving forward to reduce suicide risk among adolescents. And in a uh, report published December 19th in JAMA, there was a nationwide survey in 2015 looking at sexual identification of adolescents and their reported risk of suicide or whether or not they were seriously considering suicide. 40% of adolescents who identified as one of a sexual minority, gay, lesbian, or bisexual, or said they were unsure of their orientation, reported seriously considering suicide. 35% reported planning suicide and 25% reported attempting suicide. And that's significant when you compare it with heterosexual high schoolers whose rates were 15%, 12%, and 6%. So it's a significantly more than doubling the risk for these minority students. And the risk of suicidal behavior among sexual minority youth is tragically high, according to Anna Mueller, who's a sociologist at University of Chicago. The results come 
More than 15 years after the first study to provide nationwide evidence on the elevated risk of suicide behavior in sexual minority youth, the new research uses the 2015 National Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which queried public and private high school students in every state and Washington, D.C. More than 15,500 teens responded. About 89% of participants reported they were heterosexual, 2% identified as gay or lesbian, 6% as bisexual, and 3% reported that they were not sure. The survey did not include transgender as an option. Sexual minority youth often struggle with mental health problems because of social stigma and harassment, according to Mueller. And these difficulties can be overt, like as a result of bullying or rejection by family members, or they can be very subtle. And she says just fearing how their family or friends may react to their sexual orientation can isolate youth and profoundly harm their mental health. And like any kids, sexual minority youth need to feel safe, accepted, and supported. Only when we provide them with a climate that does that will we begin to see suicidality drop off in this vulnerable population. I, you know, I wonder about this, what, if it's gotten worse or better. I would hope that if you looked at the equivalent population 10, 20 years ago, that maybe the suicidal ideation would be higher. The rub there is that I doubt that you would get as many people in those times identifying or self-identifying or maybe they were closeted. So it's hard to run a con to know whether we're getting better yeah. as a society or worse. But this is some real interesting and important insight, obviously into uh, the gap there between hetero and, and uh, sexual minority. So it's, it's definitely a challenge that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's, it's all about finding out what we don't know, you know, what are the gaps, and then how can we help to make it better? And how can we create safe places for youth to be able to face these challenges as they grow up? Yeah, it's tough. I got yeah. two young boys, four and eight, and I'm dreading the reckoning of self-realization, whether it be sexual minority or other. Yeah, it's teenage years are, are the oh. teen years are hard enough as it is. And oh, yeah. no. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No. But that does it for me for the roundup. Dalen, what do you have? Well, speaking of suicide, you know, this time of year after the holidays, uh, I'm sure there is an increased uptick in suicide, if not, you know, during the holidays. But there's like a depression generally speaking, and I'm here to add to that. Here's another depression <laughs> bomb for you. Remember all that booze that you were drinking over the holidays? We talked about this last show, I think, about why alcohol is bad for you. I got more bad news. The World Health Organization, International Agency on, on Research on Cancer, you know, they classify alcohol as a group one carcinogen, citing convincing evidence that it causes cancer in humans. Well, Working with mice in a laboratory, British scientists have used chromosome analysis and DNA sequencing to examine the genetic damage caused by acetaldehyde, which is mm -hmm. the harm, harmful chemical produced when the body processes alcohol. You know, by alcohol dehydrogenase makes it uh, acetaldehyde, but then that's like toxic. So if that harmful chemical is associated with uh, carcinogenesis, the findings of this group, they offer more detail about how alcohol increases the risk of developing seven types of cancer, including common forms such as breast, bowel. It also shows how the body seeks to defend against damage alcohol can do. So to quote Keaton Patel, the professor at Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology who led the study, some cancers develop due to DNA damage in stem cells, while some damage occurs by chance, our findings suggest that drinking alcohol can increase the risk of this damage. All right, so this is a Nature paper published just a week or two ago. And in this study, they gave diluted alcohol to mice and then analyzed the effects on animals' DNA. They found that acetaldehyde can break and damage DNA within blood stem cells, permanently altering the DNA sequences within the cells. And they also looked at how the body tries to protect itself against the damage. The first line of defense is uh, enzymes called aldehyde dehydrogenases, or ALDHs. These break down acetaldehyde to acetate, which the cells can then use as a source of energy. When mice lacked this critical ALDH enzyme and were given alcohol, their DNA suffered four times as much damage compared to control mice. So clearly this ALDH, this aldehyde dehydrogenase, seems to be playing an important role in breaking down this intermediate substrate that alcohol becomes into 
form that can be consumed and is otherwise toxic. Cells also have a second line of defense in the form of like all the DNA repair systems. But, you know, if you break it a hundred times, the repair systems can be overcome. And these people, particularly some people from Southeast Asia who may have a repair system that doesn't work as well or may lack some of these intermediate enzymes like ALDH or have hypoactive enzymes, you can be susceptible or increase susceptibility to cancer. So this kind of gives a mechanistic view how alcohol can connect to cancer and also gives an idea of how this can be different depending on your genetic makeup. You know, if you have any kind of mutation in some of these defense mechanisms, you could be at increased risk to alcohol. So good thing you drank about a liter of grain alcohol in the last month. <laughs> I, yeah, studies like this, though, you know, there's bodies of evidence that suggest there are aspects of drinking wine or beer that can protect your health, that can help you live longer. So the question is, how does this all balance out in the end? You know, when you're just looking at alcohol itself on its own with nothing else from the bacterial influence or from your diet's influence, you know, if you're drinking wine with a meal or beer with, I don't know, French fries. <laughs> How do these different factors all play in together? So I think it's important to know these basic steps of how it all works together and how alcohol can contribute to cancer. But I think we also need to consider that it's a very complex system and that basically everything gives mice cancer. That's true. These mice, they just, they, uh, do they all die from cancer? <laughs> I know. Research. I, I mean, seriously, if we were doing an overview of scientific research, and if you were an alien coming from, you know, like, what do the scientists on Earth do? It's like, oh, they give mice cancer and then cure them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They get a lot of, cause of death for mice. It's like 90% cancer. These yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Well... You know, part of understanding cancer or any long-lived kind of stem cell is understanding the behavior, the kind of lineage hierarchy. What cell gives rise to what cell, which gives rise to what cell. And it's tough, you know. And in, in typical systems, the way we've done this classically is in the hematopoietic system. And the reason why this is so approachable is because you can take these stem cells out of the body and then put them back in. You can make a manipulation, you can label them so you can monitor them, and then put them back in and track all their derivatives. Well, you know, the problem with that method is that it's false. It's not the endogenous system. It's a perturbed system. So by tagging bone marrow cells of mice with a genetic label or barcode, new research has been able to track and describe the family tree of individual blood cells as they form in their natural environment. And that's key. This is a study published just now in Nature. And the study moves research a step further towards understanding the development of blood and other regenerative therapies. And the researchers believe it's applicable to almost any stem cell hierarchy, specifically, you know, maybe even skeletal muscle cells, like we're going to talk with Dr. Pyle about in this week's show. But getting back to this study, uh, to quote the first author, Alejo Rodriguez Fraticelli from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. I don't even know if he's Italian, but that was a good Italian accent, right, Kiki? I did a good one there, <laughs> You're right? You're working right? it. Yeah, yeah, that was I good. I did it. I did it. Fraticelli, our results show that stem cells and their less pluripotent descendants, that was terrible, blood progenitors <laughs> behave somewhat differently when studied without removing them from their native environment versus when studied in a laboratory or in transplantation, leading to differences in the type of blood lineages they make. That's according, again, to Dr. Fraticelli. Due to the lack of appropriate tools to study how blood forms in the natural environment in the body, we've always done this, like I said, with these transplant perturbed studies, and this changes the lineage potential of the blood stem cells, according to the authors here, and probably there's consensus on that. So specifically, in this study, they, they tag the cells using a transposon, this piece of genetic code that can jump to a random point in the DNA when exposed to the enzyme transposase. And what they did is they initiated that transposase and jump, and then they tracked all the cells that had that same relocation of the transposon, thereby creating a pretty rigorous lineage hierarchy in vivo. And this research provides evidence for a substantially revised roadmap for normal blood regeneration or blood production in a natural environment and highlights how in these conditions, Blood stem cells and progenitor cells manifest unique properties, at least relative to the classic behavior 
that's been observed in these transplant studies. So, you know, looking at these, you know, you just alluded to it. We're curing a lot of cancer in mice. We're looking at these systems, but they're not quite the way they exist in the, in the way we care about them. So it's important to get the, you know, ground's eye view on the ground, what's going on in the body, and that's what they've done. Another big study in nature from Harvard. What do you know? <laughs> Harvard, always putting out the big studies. Like, again, it's this, the basic stuff. We need to understand how these things work, but then, and the barcoding will help push it forward so that we can put these cells in their places at various times and, you know, scan them, scan the cells, just like the groceries going through the exactly. line. I was just going to yeah. say, it's an analogy for how, you remember when you used to actually put all the little price tags? You had the guy banging on all the cans. Well, mm -hmm. you know, this is a step up. Now we got the barcodes. Yep. We also got something else new. I like new. Happy like new, new year. We'll have to see how novel and how important this is, but we can get to that after. So circular RNAs, you know about these? I didn't know about them until I read this story. Yeah. Taiwanese scientists have discovered that circular RNAs, also known as circ RNAs, you know, makes sense. They play a key functional role in pluripotent stem cells, which may help the development of regenerative medicine medical technologies. I mean, the insight that circ RNAs play a role, that is. At a press conference Wednesday, Kuo Hong Chi, an associate research fellow at the Institute of Cellular and Organismic Biology at Taiwan's Academy, Sinica, said that his team had found that human pluripotent stem cells contain high levels of certain circ RNAs. And one type of circ RNA, this circ berk 6 circ berk circ berk it acts to regulate stem cell pluripotency. And by manipulating the expression of circ berk 6 the researchers were able to direct pluripotent stem cells to either maintain pluripotency or initiate cellular differentiation. That's according to Quo. I don't know if I believe it. I got to take a close look at the study. You know, although iPS cells, they can get derived, you can derive them from all kinds of somatic cells. The way that they regulate pluripotency and differentiation, we don't exactly know. Although there's a lot of research on how they do that. And now Quo is adding another player to the mix, Cirque 6 you know, up to now, uh, this is a quote from Quo, in the past, circ RNAs were considered to be mistakes in RNA processing, but current research shows that circ RNAs may have important functions, including the regulation of gene expression. I am more likely to think that circ RNAs are mistakes, frankly, but, you know, we'll have to see with added research. Maybe everyone can jump in on the circ RNAs and see if they're, you know, they do something. I don't want to say they do nothing. But I don't know that it's an essential regulator of pluripotency. Right. But again, it's important. Maybe it's not necessarily the only factor, but it may be an important factor. So, you know, a new thing, a new thing, circ RNA, something else to get excited about. Yeah, I mean, so much about RNA. And there was a period of time where these little short RNAs, fragments floating around were just thought to be cellular junk, right? We thought these areas of the genetic code were non-coding and didn't do anything, but it turns out they make these little segments of RNA that have all sorts of importance for transcription and for regulation of protein levels and metabolism of cells and all sorts of stuff. And so there's a lot that we're still figuring out and learning about RNA. So I'm going to put this on the, we're going to learn a lot more about it. Maybe it will be big. Maybe it won't be. Okay. But this is something, like you said, people need to take a look at it and determine whether or not it's important. But Agreed. there's this evidence that says maybe it is. I don't want to be a detractor. I sound like a real Luddite. Oh, those circ RNAs oh, don't do RNAs. Yeah, kids I'm these days with their circ the RNAs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that does sound just like me, actually. Oh, I hate myself, but I'm still, I'm still cynical. We're gonna have a talk about this later, you and me, Kiki. All right. It's yeah. gonna be antagonistic. All right. Give it a couple years. Last story. You know the RPE, retinal pigment epithelium. People are going crazy about the eye this year, this past year. Mm. All this stuff going on. It's like the first candidate for therapy in human. Well. Scientists at the National Eye Institute, which is part of the NIH, they report that tiny tube-like protrusions called primary cilia on cells of the retinal pigmented epithelium, let's call it RPE, this is a layer of cells in the back of the eye, that these primary cilia are essential for the survival of the retina's light-sensing photoreceptors. So 
this is an important advance because it's advanced efforts to to make these actual RPE from stem cells uh, that can be used for transplantations in, into patients with geographic atrophy, also known as dry age-related macular degeneration, which is a lead uh, cause of blindness in the U.S. So this is a story that just came out in Cell Reports. Studies lead investigator Kapil Bharti, he's a statman investigator at the NEI, it's in, within the NIH, and incidentally, Dr. Barty is leading the development of patient-specific cell-derived RPE for an AD, AMD clinical trial that is set to launch in 2018, one of the first patient stem cell-derived RPE-derived therapies. So this guy clearly knows what he's talking about. And, you know, just to set the stage here, the, the efforts to create functional RPA implants, they've hit a, a recurring obstacle, and that is that the iPSCs, the induced pluripotent stem cells that are programmed to become RPE, they have a tendency to get stuck developmentally. To quote Barty, these cells frequently fail to mature into functional RPE capable of supporting photoreceptors. In cases where they do mature, however, RPE maturation coincides with the emergence of primary cilia on the iPSC-derived RPE cells. So it's the cells that mature are the ones that have these cilia. So the obvious extension, maybe not so obvious, certainly innovative, the researchers tested three drugs that are known to modulate the growth of primary cilia on iPSC-derived retinal pigmented epithelium. And as predicted, the two drugs that are known to enhance cilia growth, they significantly improve the structural and functional maturation of iPSC-derived RPE, whereas the drug that inhibited the cilia development had the opposite effect. So it seems like the cilia are important. And in fact, the, in these cells that were promoted to mature by the cilia-promoting drug, the gene expression profile resembled that of adult RPE cells, and importantly, the cells performed a crucial function of mature RPE cells. They engulfed the tips of photoreceptor outer segments, which is a pruning process that keeps the photoreceptors working properly. So in addition to this, they also generated these RPE cells from a patient, from iPS cells derived from a patient with ciliopathy a disorder that causes severe vision loss due to photoreceptor degeneration. And this ciliopathy was associated with mutations in this cilia gene. And compared with a healthy donor, the RPE from that patient, they had cilia that were smaller, and also they had this maturation defect that was similar to the RPE that was treated with the cilia-inhibiting drug. So it looks like this actual incidence of ciliopathy looks like it's recapitulating the cilia inhibitory phenomenon. And the drug that promotes cilia growth seems to have the reverse effect in making mature RPE. So this is a pretty major step forward, I think, for a guy that's setting up the trials on how he's going to get these cells into patients. He's honing in on what the perfect cell is, what the means are of getting the most mature cell that's going to do the job, and he's getting close. I mean, this is the way to do it, you know, figure out exactly what cell you need and and what's going to work the best and target it, do it. Get it. It's going to be good. And this study's not silly at all. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Oh, I'm the, having a bad influence on you. The puns. <laughs> oh, the puns. Well, you're the pun master. I just make dumb jokes. Uh, we are the perfect pair. <laughs> it's perfect. But I believe that does it. For mm -hmm. our roundup, yes? That's it. All right. Well, before we get to the interview, are you interested in learning more about leukemic stem cell development? Of course. Yeah. Well, Stem Cell Technologies would like to present Dr. Susan Imren in a webinar entitled Targeting Self-Renewal Function in Normal Hematopoietic and Leukemic Stem Cells. Dr. Imren is a senior staff scientist from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and she will discuss the factors affecting the balance between self-renewal of hematopoietic stem cells and leukemic transformation. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can view the recorded webinar at www.stemcell.com slash targeting self-renewal. That's stemcell.com slash targeting self-renewal. All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. April Pyle. 
April is currently an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Molecular Genetics at UCLA and a member of the Eli and Edith Broad Stem Cell Center, the Center for Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, and the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center at UCLA. Dr. Pyle's lab uses multidisciplinary approaches to study human pluripotent stem cell biology and differentiation of these cells for use in regenerative medicine. Dr. Pyle's lab studies both basic aspects of stem cell biology as well as more translational aspects of human pluripotent stem cell differentiation towards skeletal muscle for use in therapeutic approaches for patients with muscular dystrophy. And here to discuss her work and recent publication, Dr. April Pyle, thank you so much for joining us today on the Stem Cell Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Can you just start off by expanding a little bit more for our audience into what you and your lab do? Sure. So my lab um, is interested in studying human pluripotent stem cells and specifically their ability to specify or differentiate into specific cell types, lineage specification into skeletal muscle is what we've been really focusing on the last few years. And we've also been developing disease models in a dish to study devastating muscle diseases, including Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So yeah, maybe this is a good time we can refresh our audience because a lot of your work pertains to Duchenne's. Could you explain what this disease is, how the course it takes, the impact it has on the uh, patient's lives and what the prognosis is for them and existing treatments, et cetera, please? Absolutely. So DMD is a devastating muscle disease and there is no cure. So this is disease due to mutations in the largest gene in the genome, dystrophin. And without this protein, the muscle membrane essentially becomes damaged. And this leads to loss of muscle function over a patient's lifetime. Eventually, patients become wheelchair-bound in their teens and die in their 20s. Currently, there are no uh, cures, there really are only things that treat underlying symptoms. So there are no current approaches to treat the underlying disease, which is mutations in dystrophin that lead to um, loss of muscle function. There's a lot of exciting avenues kind of in the pipeline right now, but currently there really are no existing strategies for treating these patients. And is muscular dystrophy, is it similar in the muscle wasting aspects to other muscle wasting diseases that, are, that people suffer from? Yeah, so it's interesting. DMD uh, primarily affects cardiac as well as skeletal muscle. And so there are other muscular dystrophies where only certain muscle groups are affected. Uh, DMD is primarily affected in, you know, diaphragm. The patients typically die of respiratory and cardiac failure but most of their muscles are affected or few are spared. And other muscular dystrophies have other muscle types affected. I would think that, you know, if there was a defect in the protein, it would affect be embryonic lethal, so to speak. Why is it that the muscle, that this is a degenerative disease and why the onset, or maybe the onset is early, but how are these patients alive at all? So essentially the muscle membrane becomes unstable and this leads to activation of the stem cell telling the stem cell to replace damaged myofibers. So the myofibers kind of degenerate over time. And so a lot of patients actually aren't diagnosed until they're age two or three. It's noticed that they sort of have a walking delay, for example. Sometimes patients have cognitive associations as well. So it's kind of a debilitating muscle disease over time that eventually leads to stem cell exhaustion. And so once all of the muscle cells get, you know, the stem cells get activated, then there's no more stem cells to replace and repair damaged muscle. And this leads to kind of a huge influx of fat and fibrotic tissue that really at that point is challenging for allowing new muscle growth at all. So I guess this is why pluripotent stem cells may be a great candidate for intervention here. If you could replace or correct those skeletal muscle stem cells early on, presumably then you could somehow, you know, get the, those muscles back on course. Is that right? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So in fact, the earlier that you consider treating the patients, the better, because as I said, eventually the niche or the muscle environment is completely, you know, replaced by other cell types. And so 
either targeting the endogenous stem cells to correct the genetic defect or replacing the cells with corrected stem cells has the ability to repair the muscle defects over a patient's lifetime. And where are we in the actual development of these therapies? Like what's the current state of the field? So currently, as I said, there are no strategies that have been approved that are treating the underlying disease. However, there is a this year. So it's been an exciting time the past couple of years. There's a lot of things that are in the pipeline, for example, exon skipping, which targets, except for the first one was really skipping a specific exon that allows for a reframing of the dystrophin gene. But the challenge there is that this has to be weekly infusions. It's not permanent. It's something that is, you know, an anti-sense-based strategy. Recently, there's a company that is phenomenal called Solid Biosciences that is opening enrollment for patients to replace dystrophin using a microdystrophin. Now, dystrophin's huge. It's the largest gene in the genome. So strategies to replace the gene have been challenging. And so one of the current thoughts is that using a smaller version, and this is basically AV-based delivery, could uh, replace at least enough dystrophin to see functional gain in patients. But this is just now starting. And so it'll be really interesting to see and follow up on how these trials are developing, because I think this is going to really tell us a lot about applications in the future. So for example, there are challenges associated with AV-based strategies. And so some of these include the size of AV. One of the things that we're really interested in is the fact that AV doesn't really target the endogenous stem cell. And so we feel strongly that targeting the endogenous stem cell will be a requirement for a lifelong cure for these patients. So if you're able to replace dystrophin in patient muscles, this is something that may extend lifespan, but we don't really know how long because patients, depending on their activity, may continuously break down myofibers and require the need for activation of stem cells to make new myofibers. So it's a great start, and I think it's an exciting time. But I think that, you know, what we learn from this will help us develop better trials in the future. And you need to replace those stem cells that are exhausted. And how do you go about doing that? Exactly. So I think that there's a couple of strategies. I think one of the things that we've been most interested in is trying to think about making the stem cell that exists in muscle, which is one of the most well-studied stem cells, the satellite cell, trying to make this cell in a dish and, and hopefully eventually give these back through delivery strategies to patients with DMD. But there are challenges associated with delivery. I think delivery is the greatest barrier. And so really understanding how to get this stem cell to multiple muscles is going to be a challenge. So maybe this is a good time to get into your most recent paper in Nature Cell Bio. So this was, you know, the headline there, I think that a lot of people are paying attention is because it, it has a lot of potential for addressing muscular dystrophy by the means that you just elaborated on. But the real, I think, important advance in this study was more fundamental in general, which was the idea that to get the appropriate cell type, you had to inform them. There was a specific subset of cells that were more functional. Is that right? Could you elaborate on what the innovation, what the, the advance was in this most recent paper? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that is interesting is that, I mean, as you know, you can make any cell type in a dish from a human pluripotent stem cell. And so what that means is that you really have to understand developmentally how to make the appropriate cell type in a dish. And so for a long time, everyone in the field has made cell types that express the key markers expressed on muscle progenitor cells in development. But just because a cell type expresses a specific transcription factor doesn't mean that it's functional. And so what we did in this recent study done by uh, first author Michael Hicks in the lab was we tried to identify, first of all, what cell types are we making in a dish that is a muscle progenitor cell type? So all of the current approaches make a cell that expresses the correct satellite cell marker. And so the thought was that we were making, you know, an adult-like satellite cell in a dish, but it turns out that what we're really making is a more embryonic or fetal-like cell. And we tried to use the standard markers in the field to look at their function. So we tried to pull out cells based on this marker, NCAM. NCAM is expressed on many cell types, including neural cells. And what we found is that when we pulled out this standard marker, 
it didn't enrich for a functional muscle cell. And so we went back to human development. And that's something that my lab's sort of theme has been for a while is trying to understand what cell type we're making from human pluripotent stem cells that recapitulates a real cell in development because we think this is going to result in a truly functional cell. So when we went back to human development, we profiled different musculoskeletal tissues and found that there are specific receptors that are expressed in these early human developing muscle cells that seem to be a more relevant marker to enrich for. And when we applied this, in fact, when we applied this in human development or from human pluripotent stem cells, what we found is that we could enrich for a cell that had more myogenic potential, meaning that it was able to make a functional fused myofiber in a dish, as well as engraft and restore functional myofibers in vivo in animal models of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This was really kind of groundbreaking because now we have tools to pull out the right cells, and these cells enrich for cells that express key myogenic transcription factors. And with the animal models, were these changes that were perpetuated over what period of time? Was it a long period of time? What was your endpoint? Yeah, this is a great question. So we use the animal model of Duchenne muscular dystrophy or DMD called the MDX model. We cross this to NSG mice to allow our cells to engraft and not get immune rejected. And what we did is we used the tibialis anterior TA muscle. We pre-treated this muscle to induce damage. And then we engrafted our cells and we allowed the cells to incorporate for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, we essentially isolated the muscle and we looked to see have the cells restored the missing protein in the animal model, namely dystrophin. And when we did that, we were able to see that using our enrichment strategy, we were able to get a large increase in the number of myofibers that restored dystrophin. And I should say, to kind of step back, this is building on our previous work where we had shown that we can develop a gene editing or CRISPR-Cas9-based strategy to restore dystrophin in the human pluripotent stem cells themselves. Then from that protocol, now with this paper, we developed a strategy to push these, enrich these in with these new markers for myogenic progenitors that then engrafted. We've been able to both develop a correction strategy in a dish, differentiate these, and then show that they can restore function or exact or dystrophin restoration, I should say, in animal models of the disease. So is this to kind of imagine a therapy, which doesn't take that much imagining, I guess, is that you would take an affected patient when neonate, get the iPS cells, generate these progenitors, and then correct or correct this, the stem cells, generate the progenitors, and re-engraft. Is there also the potential, though, to just isolate the muscular skeletal muscle progenitors and then directly correct those, or is that just impractical? a great question. I think we don't know the answer yet. We don't know the timing of when this would be a viable approach. So I think timing is going to be critical because you're going to need to reach as many muscle groups as possible. And currently, we don't have a cell that can migrate, you know, to reach all muscles. And so what would need to be done is then think of a way to, you know, at an age that you could actually repopulate as many muscles as possible, maybe possibly by direct injection into those muscles. So the earlier, the better. But wouldn't the same challenge then face the pluripotent stem cell derivatives? Yes, definitely. So that's a huge challenge. In the field, the, the history of the field has been such that people have tried to take isolated satellite cells and then give these back to patients with DMD. And the challenge has been that as soon as you take the stem cells out of the niche, they activate and mm. they turn on a differentiated marker. And so then they lose their ability to act as a stem cell in vivo. So you have challenge of targeting multiple muscles, but you also have the challenge of the stem cell, maintaining the stem cell. As soon as you take it out of its environment, it activates. And so much like you know other stem cell lineages, they, they're difficult to maintain and culture and expand. And so what we really need to do is to find ways to keep this stem cell in an expanding state and then re-engraft because if you had the optimal stem cell population, you wouldn't need that many. Whereas current clinical trials prior have used myoblast-like cells, which aren't stem cells. What about, though, just short-circuiting? I'm sure you've considered this, your earlier paper with the CRISPR-based approach. 
reframing the endogenous cells with the you know direct target if you could get the delivery to be widespread enough targeting the CRISPR repair to the endogenous cells absolutely so that's another project parallel we're doing the lab um, in collaboration with Melissa Spencer and so here we have a CERM funded project to really compare two different strategies one direct in vivo delivery of the CRISPR Cas9 gene editing machinery for DMD and two, ex vivo corrected stem cells and then delivering those. So considering both platforms, you know, there's pros and cons of each. So in thinking about in vivo, direct in vivo delivery strategies, the challenge is current approaches use AV. And AV is an immunogenic, it's going to cause an immune reaction. Cas9, at least by others in the field have shown, specifically Jeff Chamberlain and others have shown that Cas9 is going to stick around with an AV-based approach for quite a while. And so this raises potentially safety concerns. Another key problem, which I mentioned before, is that the AV does not target the endogenous stem cell. So even if you fix the myofiber, you still need to target the endogenous stem cell to have a lifelong cure. So that's where the other strategy, which is ex vivo correction, and then delivering this back is another potential opportunity, but also has additional challenges. Are you looking at some of the updated CAS systems yet, like the RNA targeting systems, the CRISPR-Cas13, that are supposed to have better effectiveness in targeting? Yeah, so we have not embarked on those yet, but they're definitely in the pipeline for evaluation. We've been spending the most time trying to understand. So we spent a lot of time uh, making these patient-specific lines. We're making more patient-specific lines, and we're trying to understand how functional is the dystrophin protein we're making because we're removing a hotspot region, which could potentially target 60% of patients. This is within an exon 45 to 55 hotspot region in patients. This challenge is that we're making a, an allelic disease called a Becker muscular dystrophy patient. And so what we don't know is, you know, how functional is this protein that we're making? So we've been thinking a lot about this as well as trying to understand this in humanized models, as I said, and grafting our stem cells in vivo as well. So we would like to get to those alternative targeting strategies with newer CASs, but we haven't yet. How long before you actually get to the point where you're making these for patients? Where do you see this going down the road? What are your stumbling blocks? I think a challenge and something that we highlighted in our recent paper is that what you make from a human pluripotent stem cell, at least in the myogenic lineage, is probably the best we're making is kind of a fetal-like myogenic progenitor cell. And so what we're asking now really is how functional is the cell? Because is it a true stem cell? Is it equivalent to the adult stem cell that you see in vivo? And so in order to know that, you have to do kind of a more extensive study, which involves understanding repopulation. And so much like other stem cell, hematopoietic stem cell systems, for example, we don't really know how functional these cells are in long-term repopulation. And so what we're trying to do is to see if we put our cells in there, can it get into the right stem cell niche? Can it repopulate after continuous injury? And then, then we'll be closer to knowing that we have a stem cell that can function long-term. Otherwise, we're just putting in a myoblast, which is going to have benefit, no doubt. But one thing that we're really interested in is kind of just pushing it a little bit further and trying to understand, can we make a truly functioning stem cell that has long-term repopulating potential? So it's, I think it's going to be a number of years before we really understand if, how truly functional that cell is. So I don't want to minimize the importance of the work, but I have a silly question. I'm sorry, which is not related to disease because, you know, the, with disease, it's tough because you have to repair pretty much all the essential muscles, right? Anything that's essential for a good quality of life. But let's say it was more like a cosmetic type boutique approach. Could you theoretically, conceivably, it'd be easier even to just like inject a few of these muscular stem cells into whatever region of, a, say, an athlete? in order to promote kind of constructive muscle amplification? Would that be feasible or would it be kind of like a willy-nilly weird muscle that was ectopic and like caused, you know, kind of muscular arrhythmia? No, it wouldn't be like arrhythmias, I don't think, like you would see in cardiac. But I think you really, for each system, you would have to know what environment you're putting that cell into, right? So there are other types of strategies that involve only targeting specific muscle groups. And in that case, 
you could potentially after, say, for example, resection surgeries, rebuilding muscle in specific regions, think about smaller regions to restore uh, new myofibers in those regions. And so I think that could be, you know, more of a first step as opposed to thinking about DMD. And maybe that's kind of an easier stepping stone. But I think it's really going to depend on can you, is there a niche that supports the cell that you're putting it in, right? So if that cell is seeing a lot of other factors, other um, tissues, fibrotic regions, maybe this is something that is the case in certain approaches that you're just describing, that would be, that would dictate how functional that cell is going to be able to make new muscle. But I think it certainly would be something to consider in terms of a smaller step. But no uh, cellular doping in the Mr. Universe contest we've got to worry about here. That Not quite that yet. That's immediate goal. <laughs> Are you imagining those Popeye mice, the big bolt, bulked up mice, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I guess that was kind of systemic and in context. I guess it's not a matter of just like, I'm picturing injecting a syringe of cells into like your pecs and having them blow up like, like balloons, but that's silly. <laughs> Somebody did that recently, not with cells, but just with CRISPR-Cas9 and some muscle genes. I don't remember what the genes were, uh, but yeah, Josiah Zayner did that recently. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are certainly regulate myostatin, which is kind of regulating muscle mass. And so there are approaches to do that. We've been really kind of just trying to focus on getting a good muscle stem cell, because then you could think about using this in many applications. And so really, we're still, I think, as a field trying to make sure that we have the most functional muscle stem cell. On our last show, we interviewed a researcher who works on skin grafting and skin regeneration. And so I'm imagining this as like a, a muscle regenerating graft where you could have a little a soup of cells or a paste of cells that are seeded with stem cells that can be put into damaged areas in the muscle, large muscle areas of accident victims that would potentially repopulate that whole area and say, all of a sudden, you know, you had a chunk of your thigh missing and now it's grown back and functional again. Right. So, you know, uh, targeted injuries, for example, in war situations, I think would be another opportunity. And I think you raised a good point, actually, that potentially there may be the need for other supportive cell types. And that's something that I think is an important question in the field, too. Could you, you know, in combinations of strategies, either engineering or with multiple cell types, would that help support your cell during engraftment? And again, it's going to depend on the disease setting, I think. So along those lines with uh, DMD, like the motor neurons and all the other associated cell types are kind of in place. You just need to repair the muscle stem cell or do you need to kind of like reconfigure the whole niche there? That's a great question. And I think that what's interesting about DMD is that every patient is affected differently. I think the underlying disease is loss of muscle function. But then depending on the severity, so some patients come into the clinic and are much less severe than others. And so depending on the severity of patients, you might have to think about ways to open up a spot to even put your cells, right? So if there's a lot of collagens and, you know, ECM and fibrotic tissue, you might have to think about a two treatment strategy where first you open up a niche and then you put your cells in or maybe you deliver combinations at the same time. And so I think that this is really going to depend on timing of these treatment strategies. Because the younger, obviously, the better. And there you'll really just be putting in the corrected stem cells or targeting the stem cells that are there. As patients get older, their stem cells exhaust or are dysfunctional. And so, you know, that's going to be somewhere in their teens to 20s, and that's going to depend on the patient. So we really don't know enough about that trajectory, especially since it's a more rare patient population. With genetic testing these days, are people more often likely to know that their potential offspring are have the potential for muscular dystrophy? Is this something that's carried along family lines in that way? Certainly. there It is, you know, a single... It's a mutation dystrophin, so there are ways to know family history. Boys typically die in their teens or 20s, and one-third of cases are spontaneous. And so unless you have, there is no standard clinical genetic test for dystrophin mutations because it's the largest gene in the genome, and it's really difficult at this point to design tailored strategies unless you do whole genome sequencing, which a lot of people are, but not everyone, right? So 
because one third are spontaneous, there's still always going to be an issue there. But it does bring up an interesting point for the potential of parents to potentially know about risk for offspring. And if, especially if they're doing something like IVF, be able to maybe do something about it. That's right. Absolutely. So in those cases in IVF, the embryos could be screened. It just seems in this particular case, the earlier you can catch it, as we learn more about how to fix it, the better it'll be. 100% agree. Yeah, no question. So April, just to close out here, because we talk, we're taking too much of your time here. We're going to try something a little fun here. What do you think, you know, you've been in DMD and muscle wasting diseases. Just a question here. What do you think is the most profound and surprising development, either in your field or across all fields, in that you would least expect in your scientific career? And what do you think is going to be the greatest challenge moving forward, either specific to DMD or generally? I think that, you know, one of the greatest challenges, especially as we embark on personalized medicine, is the great variation in patient populations and in disease spectrums. And so I think that one of the things that I'm most excited about is trying to understand these individualized differences, whether they be in individual cells and specific cell types. So the Zuckerberg Institute, for example, has a great program where they're really looking at this, trying to understand differences across different cell types, as well as differences in disease state. And so I think that this is going to be a real challenge in the era of personalized approaches that we're really going to have to combine both genomics, big data, as well as cell-based and, you know, gene editing strategies in the future. And what's next for you? So for me, we're going to continue on both strategies. We're going to try and develop an in vivo stem cell targeting platform. We're doing this now with non-viral approaches. And we're also trying to improve our ability to make a real functional muscle stem cell in a dish that has continuous repopulation ability. And so, you know, with both going on in parallel, I think in the next five or so years, we'll make good strides in having potential avenue for muscle wasting diseases. Wonderful. We wish you the best of luck in your work. We hope you are capable and able. Your lab is able and your collaborators are able to come together and make this a reality. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right, Kiki, that was April Pyle. She came in with a very fluent discussion of, you know, pretty much how she's going to fix DMD. And I believe she's going to do it too. She has this two-pronged approach. She's either going to hit the cells in C2 or she's going to deliver cells. I think ultimately it's going to be a complementary approach incorporating both of these. And I think it's going to work on a system as pervasive as the musculoskeletal system. That's a pretty major claim, but I believe in her, Kiki. What do you think? I think she's on the right track. I mean, she's uh, she sounds incredibly capable and her lab's research definitely precedes her. So there's this amazing body of work and there's more yet to come. We believe in you, April. That's right. At this point, though, it is time for us to close the show with the good old stem cell podcast rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I don't know if I'm going to be able to put this into words, but, you know, it's been a long couple months starting. I don't know about you. With me, it's starting Thanksgiving. It's just bang, 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 bang. We're ramming around. My mother's 70th birthday was this year with the kids. It's a million parties and the school events and the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm not going to rant about the holidays. I'm going to rant about this. The holidays are done. Don't call me. Don't try to hang out with me. I don't need to see you. I don't need to see your kid. These people try to drop a kid off at my, it wasn't even me. I was just irate, you know, vicariously. People trying to drop kids off with my wife while she's trying to get some work done. Go away. That's what, that's my rant. Go away and leave me alone. Yeah, especially your wife probably has spent the last two, three weeks at home with your children, not able to get any work done because there's no school. It's all the holiday vacation time. And then there's all the traveling and preparations and things that have to happen for the celebrations. And yeah, yeah. And so yep. it's like January begins and you're like, oh, I'm going to get back to work. This is so great. 
And oh, then ding, keep... dong. No. ding dong. No. <laughs> oh, you. That's why I'm going to answer my phone from now on. Oh, you. Yeah, I had this moment over the holidays where I just, I just looked, I stopped for a second. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so stressed out. I can't. And you know what happened? Then I got sick. Oh. <laughs> and so I couldn't physically. And then, well, so, that was your excuse, yeah. at least. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, these people bringing germs to my house, getting me sick. Yeah, there we just go. When you think, just when you think you can't do it anymore, that's when you literally cannot. You literally cannot. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'm not. I'm just going to be in bed. I'll be on the couch. That's it. Yeah, but Kiki, <laughs> knowing you, I bet you were You were all like, oh, come in. Oh, yeah. Oh, here. Oh, ah. me. I'm like, go away. Look at me. Do I look like I want to see you? I hate you. Don't ever call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're wonderful like that. I am. <laughs> I'm very accommodating. I'm friendly. I see, like seeing my wife people. Likes me. Yeah, she I blames like it all on me. When I get together, they say, oh, well, you know, Daylon's being himself again. I guess we can't have people over. <laughs> I'm like the perfect husband for that. Yeah, I love having people over. I'm like, yeah, people are over. And then I'm like, oh, you make me so tired. <laughs> I'm really conflicted. Yeah. Yep. Hashtag go away. <laughs> all right, everyone. Are you ready to start using hashtag go away on your uh, your social media? Let us know. Let us know your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast with hashtag go away. <laughs> or you can email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And don't forget, there's always our survey you can take to tell us why you listen to the Stem Cell Podcast, what you like about the Stem Cell Podcast, and also what you don't like about the podcast. Take the survey and let us know. And Dalen and everyone out there, this concludes episode 108 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to tune in next week. Thank you, Dalen. Go away. <laughs>